This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products in lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We're going to mix it up today instead of having a guest from outside of Nine Labs, we're going to talk with some internal people. And I'm uh, actually pretty excited to have uh, Kathy Fisher join us today. She's our senior UX designer. She's done lots of great work outside of Nine Labs before coming to us. And now she's doing great work for us. So, uh, Kathy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, warm and sunny here. It's, it's probably sunny, but not warm there. How, how's the weather in your part of the world? <laughs> right now, it's actually cloudy and a little warmer than, than normal, but uh, yeah. you know, it's getting slowly, slowly warmer. <laughs> the weather's mixing it up for you. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we've had our fair share of, uh, of, of interesting design challenges with the client work that we've been doing. And I know you've had, uh, you know, a lot of interesting things to work on before joining nine labs this conversation could really be around a lot of things but i think it would be uh, most beneficial to everyone who's listening to talk about some of the typical challenges that we run into and how we see the most effective organizations go about solving those things um, and, and some of the work that we're doing with them um, you know we talked briefly about how you know changing UI doesn't always fix the problem, how um, to get different departments to actually work together instead of against each other, um, trading off design uh, from a visual perspective and functionality and you know, how, we, how we help people get to um, creating something that people will actually like to use quickly and you know, without bogging the entire organization down in a bunch of discussion over things that might not matter. Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of times you have a product that might have been built, you know, any amount of time ago and, um, you know, possibly even before UX became such a, a commonplace sort of mainstay part of, of digital product development. And, you know, you'll have to work with this product and they'll finally bring in, um, you know, a design team to say, you know, we know there are usability problems with this. Can you help fix it? And then, of course, obviously, as good UX designers, we say, absolutely, we can help fix it. Um, and then, you know, later you tend to understand, okay, well, by fixing it, what are they going to allow us to change? What are the, the levers that we have access to? Mm -hmm. um, and for a, uh, a company that's, that's lower on the design maturity scale, a lot of times they think, well, the design or the UX piece is just like, will you change, yeah, how the button looks? What colors do we use? Where are things placed on the screen? Um, but usually when you're only working in that space, you find that, wow, we really, really wish we could change how this thing works because there's fundamentally something about, you know, the interaction or the system behavior, the number of steps required that makes it really, really difficult for users to use. And when the only things you have access to are the aesthetics or the, the visual presentation, a lot of times, you know, you can, you can put lipstick on that pig, but it's not actually gonna change what it is. It's not actually gonna change the experience. I think a lot of times too, you can have a, a little bit of a backlash on your users from your user's perspective of, you know, they really polished this up. It looks so much better. It's great. But like this thing that was actually frustrating me and was making my life really difficult when I'm trying to use this tool is not actually better. All it is is that you, you know, you fancied it up. And then that I think can, can cause a backlash of like, 
I am actively angry at this company now because they didn't actually, they clearly put a bunch of time and effort into this, but they didn't fix the thing that was painful for me. Yeah. A metaphor I like to use is you see all of these um, uh, kind of fast and furious wannabe cars out there. And you, you know that this is not a fancy car, but they put a big wing on the back or they give it a fancy, you know, uh, paint uh, scheme or you know, put some stickers on the side to make it look like a fast car, but it's not mm -hmm. a fast car. So just changing the appearance of something isn't going to change its underlying behavior. In your experience, who's driving that idea that just making something look better is actually going to have a material impact on its usability? I think the thing is there's the um, this sort of impression that people have when they're looking at the, the best of breed products out there, things that um, clearly have had a ton of t design thought and effort put into them. And if you're a person who doesn't necessarily understand the fundamentals of usability, you could just say, well, I know this is good. And the thing that I notice about it is it looks really good. So right. therefore the design of it must've been that it looks good, but not realizing that a ton of work was put into all of the underlying pieces of that, that also mm -hmm. made the overall experience good. Yeah. And that, that goes back to one of the, the fundamental ways that humans perceive the world, right? Mm -hmm. is you know, what we see is a, a very, very significant part of our perception of how things work and, and what reality is in front of us when oftentimes there's, you know, another layer of things underneath that that's creating what we see that we often don't pay as much attention to because it's not as visible and apparent to us. Yeah. And I think there's also just the effect of, uh, you know, great usability is often one, a thing, a usability that would remove complexity, right? That would take away things as opposed to adding things. And people don't really notice the lack of something, right? You don't notice the lack of pain or the lack of frustration as much as you do right. notice when you have it. Yeah. I'm reminded of a Mark Twain quote when he said, I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, it's really, really easy just to create something that exists, but to create something with the intentionality of making it really, really good or making it really elegant and easy to use often takes you know, exponentially more time and, and more effort, but the result often doesn't indicate how much time or effort actually went into it. So when we think about that trade-off between the, the cosmetic side, uh, you know, the UI piece and functionality, how do we get to a decision that business stakeholders can be comfortable with and that we can have some confidence that is actually going to create value for the people using the product. Yeah, I think, I mean, the heart of everything is got to be research, right? Um, is making, is figuring out, you know, what are the metrics that we have to hit? And then checking to see if a certain approach will actually uh, let us hit those metrics. Mm -hmm. I think that is the thing that oftentimes can feel daunting or feel like a waste of time or something like that to some organizations that might not have experience in the, the more, you know, user-focused testing. And they might be really good at functional testing and QA testing, um, but not, might not understand that, like, yeah, finding usability metrics um, is equally valuable, right? Because then we can see, hey, we know we could take, you know, approach A or approach B. Approach B might require, you know, might actually take some stuff out that you thought was, you know, requirement for the business perspective, or that users will only use our product if they have this feature. Mm -hmm. um, and then finding out that like, 
actually, you know, we tested it and people preferred one that didn't have as many features, but was a little bit more robust in the core features that they really wanted. And without having feedback, without having research mechanisms, you can never really answer those questions. It's just, you know, a bunch of people having opinions about, I think this is important versus I think this is important. And those yeah. are usually not productive. For a lot of organizations, the things that, that we are discussing, it's new language, it's new concepts to them. And when something is new, it's scary. And so I think part of the, the challenge with the business world in general and understanding how to create great products is just getting familiar with the language and getting comfortable with the way that, uh, that digital products are made. And it's foundationally not that much different from the way physical products are made. You know, if we think about it at a macro scale, you know, what we've been through in the past probably 10 years is akin to the, the industrial revolution um, but magnified probably at least tenfold and happening at at least 10 times the speed. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a lot of things that have, uh, have become real for a lot of businesses that we haven't had time to train people on, that the education system hasn't had time to digest well enough to be able to create a curriculum that can incorporate it into a traditional business education. And most of the people who are in leadership positions were never educated on this stuff. So it can be scary. Absolutely. And I think that it's, you know, not to say that like we designers have it all figured out. I think that there's still a lot of, uh, a lot of way for us to go in terms of how do we train, you know, new UX designers, how do we learn to get really fluent in speaking the same language as people on the business side and the development side um, to make sure that like, those conversations can happen in both directions, right? It's not just us educating our stakeholders, but it's also them being able, us being able to interpret and understand what they're saying to us about their business needs or the technical needs. I think what we do that, that the business people can understand most and where they can actually start to get the most value is understanding how to approach problem solving and bringing a philosophy to how we're going to make decisions that leads to better outcomes. And when we frame the product design process in those terms, typically people who have a more traditional uh, kind of business or, or um, other kind of manufacturing educations, they, they start to um, relax a little bit and they start to understand like, oh, okay, this actually isn't that much different. We're just doing it in a different medium and we're applying it in a different way. Yeah, I think that there's so many metaphors that can serve us to help, you know, teach, educate, make people understand um, <laughs> that design can live in a lot of these spaces and can can be really similar to things that people do understand really well. So when we think about creating a, a high functioning design uh, uh, practice within a, a company, you know, what are some of the things that you've seen be successful um, in, in all of your time as a, as a designer? Fundamentally, when I see successful teams, the thing that I that is at the root of all of them is um, trust and solid relationships across, you know, functional areas within a design team, but also just, uh, you know, between everyone involved. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you have that base level of trust and I think agreement about goals, um, you get people who are more likely to, you know, want to hear out other people to be like, okay, I know you have a different opinion for me. I want to hear it. I want to incorporate that into my understanding. I want to make sure that we're going to get 
the best outcome. Um, that happens much easier when you have people who uh, have a good baseline relationship with trust between them. And also when you all want the same thing, like we want knowing <laughs> from the start, we are aligned around this particular outcome. This is our goal. This is our North star that we're aiming for. Um, and when you have that, people tend to frame their arguments around that, right? You say like, because we want this goal, I think this, or I've seen this. Um, yeah. And I think we should make this choice. And that, so I think that that, gets around the problem of people trying to like defend their own turf, right? Of, well, from this perspective, we really want this thing. And from this perspective, we want this totally different thing that results in people just, you know, uh, butting heads and, and talking past each other. But when you have people who are truly aligned and, you know, believe everyone is, is there for the same goal, then I think that results in really, really solid product teams. You know, you hit on this idea of the North star and, um, the organization having a, a, a some alignment on what the desired outcome is. Oftentimes, that's the hardest part is to get all these different parts of the organization to agree on you know what the desired outcome is. What is it that we want to achieve? Because mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of organizations don't have themselves structured in a way where those departments can achieve alignment. I had a, a conversation with a client relatively recently about uh, getting a better understanding of how people are using the, the existing application. And our suggestion was to install some, some analytics and, and some telemetry in the app so we could actually see how people are using it. And the immediate objection uh, was, well, you know, legal is going to have to weigh in on that and info security is going to have to weigh in on that. And you know, we've tried to do this stuff in the past. And it's just a giant battle with other departments just to get something done so you can get more intelligence about the usage of the application. And that's unfortunate. The company I work with the longest, my former employer, I think had a really good philosophy around this of always responding to a challenge with yes, if, as opposed to no, because. Because with yes, if you say, oh, I recognize that this goal is important and that we should try to do it, but I know that these are the, if we can do it, if we have these needs met or these requirements met and listing that out and making everything more of like, it's doable if we do this, as opposed to saying, here's all the reasons why it's hard to do. Yeah. Which is, it's going to shut people down almost instantly. Yeah. That's a healthy way of, of approaching it. Uh, so long as it's not a veiled attempt just to gatekeep things, right? Mm -hmm. But I like that as a uh, kind of a structure. It's very similar to the yes and structure that we like to use. And, um, you know, oftentimes getting that team alignment can be really difficult. But once that happens, like let's let's take a scenario where uh, those different departments have decided to to work together and they do have a common goal and a common view of what that goal means and the outcomes they want to achieve. Uh, what have you seen in terms of the, the difference in velocity and the difference of quality of product? Like how big of a difference is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that ones that are aligned obviously are going to be able to make decisions generally faster. Um, I think that I could see other types of teams potentially being able to move really fast in fits and starts, right? If you happen to have handoffs, right? You could say, uh, well, once you know design is done and we hand it off to development, They'll move really fast or you know those types of things but then you end up with these sort of block with these choke points sometimes at those handoffs right where 
you know, group B who maybe is not aligned with group A, but needs to pick up their work and run with it has all of a sudden, you know, a bunch of differences of, of opinion or questions about them and might want to, you know, rehash conversations that have been had in the past or try to get, you know, uh, another team to budge in terms of those decisions that have been made. So um, those ones, I think, can they can have the illusion of speed because you've got a little bit more siloing and in, an individual silo could move really fast. But then you have the overall process stretching out longer because those handoffs become so painful, um, as opposed to a team that is working really tightly and closely through the entire process. Like any individual point in that process might be a little bit slower, but overall, there's going to be less rework or going back or painful handoffs um, because that consensus has been established earlier. Yeah. And that can be a tough behavior to, to get right inside an organization is getting people to participate uh, more frequently um, and to, to pay attention in meetings that might be happening more frequently with fewer decisions being made, or, or at least the decisions that are being made seem smaller in scale, but it all adds up, right? Mm-hmm. You know, brick by brick, the wall gets built. Um, and on the flip side of that, you can dive from too many paper cuts. So it's those small decisions actually matter a lot. And I think even going back to um, the, the topic we started with of the, you know, putting a code of, code of paint onto functionality, um, I think oftentimes that can be a thing that seems like it'll be, well, if we're only changing the design, that's a small project and it's not going to take very long. But a lot of times then you find, well, we unearthed so many problems during the design phase or the new design made this previous problem more obvious. Yep. Um, and then that can end up taking a lot more time than if you just like, okay, we're going to step back and start from the beginning um, with design as opposed to only doing the polishing work. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, uh, the kitchen remodel problem, right? Like you decide you're just going to replace the doorknobs uh, on, on all your kitchen cabinets, but then, oh, well, let's just, while we're doing this, let's just go ahead and paint it. And then you, while well, you get the doors off, you're like, oh, actually, there's a much bigger problem here. We got to rearrange the whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. As someone who is slowly remodeling their house, I, I feel <laughs> that acutely because I, yeah, I took the vanity out of my bathroom only to discover that there's some uh, different flooring underneath it. Oh. So I have to replace the floor. And like that type of thing happens in product design all the time. Yeah. And, and so that's maybe one of the things that scares a lot of, of leaders is, you know, if, if they peel back the first layer of the onion, like where does it stop? And, and that kind of brings us back to this question about, you know, trade-offs between design and functionality. How do you determine this is enough for us to fix right now? Let's go ahead and fix this little bit, ship it, measure it, make sure it's doing what we want, and then we'll come back to some of these other problems mm-hmm. instead of wholesale rewriting the thing from scratch. Like there's, there's got to be a, a healthy middle ground there. So how do we make those decisions? How do we uh, help organizations understand that shipping something small is often the best choice? Yeah, I mean, I think that understanding priorities from the user perspective, you know, the business perspective and being able to like lifeboat stuff in that order is, is really important. And again, goes back to the research question of, you know, if you don't have the right research, you're not going to be able to make those decisions in a, uh, in an intelligent way that will, you know, be non-destructive to, to your business model. Um, But if you understand really, really clearly, like, oh, this is the thing that is make or break for us. And right. you know, these other features are nice to have, but they're not necessary. Um, so we're going to do those later. And knowing that allows you to make those types of decisions much easier. 
Yep. And there's a couple of frameworks that we've used uh, that have evolved over time. You know, back in the software company, uh, you know, predating Nine Labs, we used a, a simple effort to impact scoring, which is like, what is the effort it's going to take to do something versus the impact it's going to create on achieving, you know, the outcome that we want. And it was a simple, you know, ratio. And, you know, the, the things that scored highly got priority. Now we've got more sophisticated things uh, like WISGIF and um, there's tools like Product Board that help prioritize things that add a third dimension of, of business priority. So what is the, the, you know, the effort or of the developer or, or you know, the design and development teams to create something or to modify something versus the impact it will have on the customer and then the third dimension now being the impact it will have on the business, uh, you know, achieving certain business priorities and just applying some simple math, that simple that framework to decision making makes it more democratized. It helps people uh, on all sides of the table understand how the decision is being made and gets people's buy in on the priority because it's it's easy to stack rank. Yeah, I was just thinking it sounds so much like um, I took a choice architecture class in grad school, which was, you know, heavily about how to make rational decisions and obviously like weighting um, those types of things was, was a big part of it. Um, and I, I wonder, I think it's an interesting aspect that, that comes in, obviously it applies to every aspect of human decision-making, but is the emotional element, right. Of, right. I weight this really highly because I happen to care about this feature or, you know, I worked on it or, you know, I, as a person <laughs> think that it's important. Um, and removing that that more emotional element and thinking like purely rationally, obviously it's basically impossible for us, but uh, is a a constant struggle, I feel. Yeah, and even you know, in larger organizations that have uh, you know, larger departments for specific activities, this, there can be some friction there. Like we had a client where there was internal friction between the the, the customer loyalty team and the revenue management team because a legitimate business metric, one team wanted to push it one direction and the other team needed to push it the other direction. And that had to be resolved before we could even have a conversation about what needed to happen in the application. Hmm. So it's, it's interesting to, to uh, kind of figure out all the nuance of, you know, what is it that the business is trying to achieve um, and how can they achieve that through creating something for their clients? You know, there's a lot of, of little details in there that can, it can really you know, slow things down and, and can be kind of gotchas. Yeah, especially I think when you have to sort of climb the leadership ladder, the decision-making ladder, like the further up you go, right, to get the answer to that question, the more time it takes to get those stakeholders in the room just because obviously yeah. you're, you're people. Right, right. And, you know, unfortunately that can slow down, you know, the release of something new. Um, but, you know, that's the reality we live in. It's, it's interesting to see organizations that, um, that have solved a lot of those internal conflicts and they've got a clear way of resolving those internal conflicts when they arrive by having clear direction for what the product should be and how they're going to achieve um, creating something of value for their customers. So fundamentally, you know, if we zoom way out to the 100,000 foot level, a company that doesn't have clear direction on what they're doing is always going to get stuck in these little design challenges because they don't have a, a clear decision-making process. Yeah. It's a, one of those things where <laughs> as designers, we always end up kind of unearthing the, 
the operational problems, right? And trying to, that's why I think that there's been this creep into, you know, obviously design ops is a huge thing. Research ops is becoming a bigger thing. DevOps has been established for a long time. But all of those things are, are just a, I think an element or a result of design thinking becoming more prevalent across the board and people wanting from the ground up or, you know, the middle management out to figure out like, how do we solve these institutional problems? How do we stop making the same mistakes over and over again? I think that's, you know, obviously really great that, that that's become more of a field. Yeah. And I think fundamentally it's, it's an exercise in truth seeking. You know, what is the real reason that this thing, it needs to exist? And what is the real reason that it needs to exist in this form? And, you know, you hit on the emotion of decision-making earlier, and it's really difficult for humans to remove emotion from decision-making. And so much has been done, uh, you know, leading up to this point where in the absence of fact, we're going to decide on emotion. And as we learn more about the way humans use digital products, we have more facts to use. And so some of it's just a, a shift in mentality of you know, leadership and organizations to, to be comfortable looking at those facts and, and be comfortable when those facts point to something that they may not have uh, intuited was the right answer. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And then there's the whole element <laughs> stacked onto that of how people often fail to correctly interpret quantitative information or to, you right. know, there's so many ways you can misinterpret, you know, a survey, for example, and obviously yep. misdesign a survey and then, you know, mold the results to match whatever your, your sort of preconception was from an emotional standpoint. Yeah. What was that thing people say? It's like 86% of statistics are wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, kind of looking forward, you know, what do you see as some of the things let, let's take um, some product leader who's out there and they're struggling with some of the things that we've discussed. What do you see are some ways that uh, they might be able to go back to, to their organization on Monday morning and say, Hey, let's try this. What, what are some things you would advise? I think that, um, you know, in general design workshops or having, you know, some kind of retreat or something where you take, a group of stakeholders, a cross-functional group, put them in a room and have them go through some basic exercises to just like remove their, their comfortable context and look at the product again um, as if they're an outsider, right? And to ask these really fundamental questions about who their users are, who their customers are, um, you know, what are the business goals and have those things like have those conversations and be able to write them down. And actually, I think, you know, a lot of the times what that's going to expose is where there's mismatches in how people think about things and how people, you know, rank different priorities and having those conversations is critical for then building that consensus. So I think there's a lot of value in just like having people in a room, obviously, in COVID times that all becomes enormously more difficult. Um, but just to, to and, you know, have those conversations and then continue to have them, right? Like make it a, a regular cadence of, we wanna have these, these moments for us to establish trust, establish consensus, um, think about things from a, a high level user and business perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I was chatting with a, a friend of mine who's been a design leader for a very long time recently. And, and he said that there's been success in some of the, um, many of the things that he's worked on in just removing the word design. Mm -hmm. 
like it's not a design activity. It's not a design exercise. It's, you know, uh, we're going to do some visual strategic work or we're going to do some things and just try to remove the word design from it because so many people have their own perception of what that word means um, and what types of activities go along with it that it's become this, this, um, this kind of charged thing that some people just don't see the value in or don't comprehend or don't fully understand. So removing the word design from those activities can oftentimes yield a much better outcome because people aren't bringing their preconceptions to the activity in the first place. Yeah. So um, where do you see things going in terms of the type of work that we do? You know, obviously we're, we're focused on product strategy and product design and not just us at nine labs, but us as an industry, where do you see things going? What types of things do you see being uh, very important for us in the short term and, and, and important for other design leaders to pay attention to? Obviously I think designers working further out, you know, more abstract, you know, working with thicker markers, whatever that the phrase is, um, <laughs> on less specific things, but also things that become more important, right? Like processes, obviously operations, like I mentioned, or, you know, the highest level of like, how does a company function? How does a, how do groups of companies function? How do governments function? So I think, you know, on the abstract at the high scale, I think we're gonna be looking more at those big problems. I also think though, at the same time, there's still so much work to be done um, in the space of, uh, you know, B2B products in general. I think that, you know, obviously there's, I think, tons of design sophistication and incentives in the um, the consumer space because, you know, those are usually products where they, you know, live or die by their usability. But I think there are probably a ton of, of products out there that have been built over the past few decades to do things like, you know, making sure the world economy doesn't collapse and that, you know, shipping still happens and that, you know, all healthcare works like um, where there's still a lot of just like easy wins. Like we could be making a lot of these systems that that underlie our society better for everyone involved. And I think that that is a the real place where I think design is is needed, and uh, we'll be doing a bunch of work in the coming decades. Yeah, I had lunch with a, a client recently, and they're in the healthcare space, and you know, he was genuinely concerned that. A lot of, of uh, systems and, and, and applications that are currently the predominant thing in our healthcare system had just been hastily or poorly designed in the first place, and that it, it, it actually has a material impact on health outcomes for people. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't want to be you know, overly dramatic here, but it's, there is a real number of people who die because these, these, the software doesn't work the way it should. And it's not as easy to use as it could be it's a morbid thing to think about, but mm -hmm. you know, that's one place that you can point to. It's like, there's a real human impact to this software being lousy. Yep. And I think that, you know, speaking about higher level stuff too, it's a lot of it is the connections between software. Um, because there's so many organizations in play in healthcare, especially in the U.S., where obviously we make it more complex than it really needs to be. <laughs> you have to, to have this dance between government and insurance companies and individual healthcare companies and individual doctors and all of that. There's there's a bunch of failure points in and amongst yep. it. Yep. And I use that as an example that, you know, if we can point to 
we don't know what that number is, but if we can point to, there's a real human impact uh, on, because of lousy software. Like that's also true in a lot of other areas. Like there's money being lost because some financial software isn't as easy to use as it should be, or it isn't as intuitive as it should be. You know, there's, you know, a real impact to manufacturing being inefficient or uh, to loss of product that just sits out at the, at sea somewhere because there's some button someone didn't know to push. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of, of waste and a lot of, of things that are, uh, you know, real things that are, that are being impacted by some software uh, not being as easy to use as it should be. And that's kind of sad. But, you know, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of design work to be done. And I think that's why another reason too why educating non-designers, non, you know, quote unquote, conventional designers in, in those principles is, is valuable, right? Because we need a lot of help to fix all the problems that we have. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that we should strive for as an industry, not just at Nine Labs, but as an industry is um, being empathetic to the the things that the business world has been taught and the way the business world operates trying to understand that in a more human way and helping the people who are struggling with real business problems see the value of solving problems the way that you know that we've been taught to solve problems and understand that it's not you know it's not adversarial like we're here to help and if we apply these problem solving techniques to the business challenges then kind of naturally and by extension, the product we're making will become better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good high note to end on. <laughs> I know you've got, I've seen your schedule. I know that you have an enormous amount of work to do and uh, I've got to, to get back to my email and spreadsheets. So thanks for carving out a little bit of time to, to chat through. It's been a, been a good conversation and I look forward to doing this again soon. Yeah, me too. It's my pleasure. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, Good design is good business.